Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 213. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, Passover is upon us. Thank you so much for the holy days, for the festival times that we can engage you in, uh, for the opportunity to plug into your program and walk where you're walking and step with your stepping and, and move at your pace. It's so important that we reclaim the festivals and the special times of the Lord because they are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. They are that which reminds us and indicates the finished work of Messiah and the work that he's going to complete. We already know that you finished your work on the cross 2,000 years ago, Lord, and we also know that the festivals lined up perfectly with what you were doing, the Passover lining up with your death on the cross, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, and all of the, or the Umr Rishit, and all of the uh, significance of what those festivals represented. You sent your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost on Shavuot. And now, when we look at the festival calendar with the fall festivals, with Yom Kippur and uh, Sukkot and Yom Truah, uh, or, or Sukkot and, uh, and uh, Yom Kippur, Yom, uh, Yom Truah, all of the festivals, I'm getting them out of order, Lord. But when we look at those fall festivals, we now are reminded that you still have things that you've yet to do. And this really plugs us, I believe, right into end-time prophecy, where you will be dealing with Israel more directly once again during those fall festivals, explaining to her, wake up, O sleeper, during the Yom Truah, Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets call, and then uh, listen to the intent, intense, uh, intense uh, atonement that was provided for you in Passover, but now you can understand that Messiah, that I am He, I am the Christ during Yom Kippur. He, I am your uh, Yom Kippur goat. I am the one who was sacrificed for you so long ago. Turn to me for repentance. And then we can have a blessed festival of Booth Sukkot where we're dwelling together once again. So this is you, O Lord, speaking to Israel during these festivals. And so it's important that we as Christians participate in them and explain them to our Jewish brothers and sisters who don't yet know who Yeshua is. So thank you, Lord, for this challenge. Bless us during these life studies and continue to draw us close to you during this opportunity. Help us to continue to pray for one another, strengthen one another, and to just be a blessing towards one another and also to be a witness to those around us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me during the live studies. This is a, uh, another look at eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events, and we're, this is the first hour-long part of our study, broken up into three separate videos on YouTube. Looking at my screen right now, what you should be able to see is the topical index that we've been working from. As you can see, 1, 2, 3, and 4 are already struck through, so we're working through Topic 5, Book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Just uh, briefly, let me flash some uh, screen images in front of you. We looked at prophetic telescoping where prophecies will deal with in, in, uh, in indication, they will indicate uh, instances of historical events that take place near to the prophet's writing. Like you see a little guy standing over there on the right side of the screen, left side of the screen. That's the prophet holding his little sheep staff there, shepherd staff. And there's a near fulfillment of that prophecy, oftentimes maybe right around the corner or within a generation of his telling it. 
And then in the time gap, there is another far fulfillment. You see that that taller uh, mountain peak. That will be the far fulfillment. But from his perspective, oftentimes he may not see that time gap between the two. And this is important for two main reasons that I'm emphasizing this. One of the reasons is because it's entirely likely at times that God it's almost like he recycles prophecy. He'll speak the prophecy once to the prophet, and yet the details of the prophecy will be used twice. So we have one telling of the prophecy, and yet there'll be two fulfillments, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Sometimes there'll even be more, but it's very rare if there's more than two. As far as I can ascertain, there's usually only just two. Sometimes only one, sometimes two, but not likely more than two. The other reason why this is important for us in terms of eschatology or end-time prophecy is because of the types and shadows uh, aspect going on. We'll read about a near prophecy, and it may not be intended to have another far fulfillment, but instead it will have a type and shadow aspect where the aspects or qualities or details given in the prophecy are meant to remind us of something that's going to happen later on, not necessarily in perfect fulfillment of the first one, but um, giving us almost like a, a dress rehearsal practice run. Something else that I, I don't seem to be emphasizing enough, and I'm but I'm doing it right now for us, is the fact that oftentimes a prophecy will have a partial fulfillment in the near category, and then it'll have its complete fulfillment in the far category. So when you're reading the prophecies, particularly ones about whole nations or countries or kingdoms like ancient Babylon that we're going to be reading about quite a bit of in the book of Revelation and Daniel and things like that. All these kingdoms and such, for instance, let me just zero in and give you one that's um, appropriate for the um, topic at hand. In the book of Daniel, chapters 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 9, we're dealing with this fourth beast who is a himself a mirror image of the fourth metal in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So Daniel chapter 2, four metals. Daniel chapter 7, four beasts. The fourth metal, which is bronze in the statue image of Daniel chapter 2, corresponds directly to the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. And in near fulfillment, far fulfillment, or partial fulfillment and complete fulfillment, we have this metal having details about it and the beast having details that we read about that were partially fulfilled in the first century, right, because they both deal with the same entity, which is Rome, and yet they're not fully fulfilled. For instance, in the in the metals, there are ten toes in the in the statue, and yet in Daniel chapter seven, the fourth beast has ten horns, and yet Rome didn't have as much ten associations with it at the time. What we're looking for then are details of the little horn who comes up, who rises up out of the other ten you know, the 11th horn who speaks boastful words, corresponding with the Antichrist figure who's going to come on the scene and do all the boastful things and atrocious things that we're going to be reading about here in Daniel chapter 9, perhaps tonight. With that perspective, we then understand that even in the in the historical time period of ancient Rome of the first century, western half of ancient Rome, not the eastern half, western Rome, there weren't any really uh, indications that this was completely fulfilled in the historical time of Rome, right? We didn't have some figure rise up and do all the things that Daniel prophesied he would do. There was kind of partial fulfillment, right, in some of the Roman emperors, right, Nero, Vespasian, and things like that. 
but nothing that really uh, matched exactly to what Daniel was talking about. So thus, we realize that it was kind of a partial fulfillment, and yet there will be a, f a final total fulfillment in the man known as Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who's going to come on the scene in the future. At least that's according to the futurist. So that's why prophetic telescoping becomes important. We also talked about how that preterist and futurist perspectives on the books of Daniel and Revelation will greatly impact your understanding of end-time prophecy. If you're a preterist, you believe that most, basically everything was smashed into 1st century, uh, 70, AD, 30, 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and you know, the plowing under of Jerusalem later on and things like that. Those are you're going to be what you believe are the complete fulfillments of biblical prophecy if you're a preterist. Whether you're a full-blown, and I've been doing a little bit more research on this, partial preterism and full-blown preterism, they both have too many things in common that, that make me comfortable to, to want to even brace those particular um, hermeneutic uh, perspectives. There's just too much that they're trying to say has already been hap has already uh, completely been done away with, already fulfilled, that I can really trust that uh, system of theology. Instead, the futurist is the perspective that seems to allow for the most natural reading of the text and allow for things to happen naturally and, and realistically and factually uh, without trying to spiritualize and allegorize and things like that. The historicist that you see on, your, on, your, on the top of the screen there that kind of runs from full left to full right, that one has a little bit more applicability to what we might see, but it also allows for a spiritualization because it doesn't lock things in time. Uh, it simply just kind of scatters them across the time almost in, in what we might call idealist fashion or kind of uh, storytelling fashion. Uh, you know, stories for the ages, things like that. Those were those. The, those were the timelines we looked at. There's your Daniel two and seven compared. In case you're interested, again the image in Daniel chapter two that we're dealing with, and also the seventy weeks of Daniel that we're going to be talking about tonight. Just flashing through these images real quick that you remember from last week. Go back and listen to episode number two hundred and twelve on my uh, YouTube channel. Seventy weeks of Daniel is broken up as we already talked about into three separate uh, segments seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. And this is given to us right in the language that Daniel supplies for us in the vision itself. So there's no need for me to assume and to imagine that this is what it should look like. This is how Daniel gives it to us. Seven weeks, which of course, as you know, is 49 years, seven weeks of seven, where the word week there represents a year, a biblical year, a prophetic year, Hebraic year, whatever you want to call it, a 360-day, 12 months of 30 days each year from the biblical perspective. Seven weeks was the first breakdown. 62 weeks is the second breakdown. And then one week is the final breakdown. We'll look at other charts that kind of fill in the, the uh, years aspect. Here's Daniel. 70 weeks is seen through this particular lens with, with, with most, of, most of the details I agree with. And then we had this perspective, which is Daniel's 70 weeks of 49 years, according to the preterist perspective. Notice they take the last seven years, the far right of your screen, and place that in the first century, effectively ruling out any possibility of a physical resurrection, a physical second coming of Messiah, a physical persecution from the Antichrist, tribulation, time period, mark of the beast, all of the things that we're used to reading about in the book of Revelation. The partial preterist takes the last three chapters of the book of Revelation 
that deal with like say um i believe the the bodily second coming of christ not the rapture but the bodily second coming of christ the establishment of the new, of the new kingdom on earth and they take that and they make that still literal so there's at least some some uh, agreement with futurists there but other than that i'm finding that even partial preterism danger runs dangerously close to robbing the bible of what should be things that we should really be looking for forward to some of them good some of them bad for instance again the preter the preterism position itself as a whole has just some 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 really questionable uh perspectives that i can't really get on board with other than the fact that if i as a futurist will recognize that certain parts of prophecy have already been fulfilled either in near term and will be again full fulfilled far term and or they've been partially fulfilled and will be again fulfilled later and or they've been fulfilled in type or in shadow fashion and will be repeated again in type fashion like type and shadow then i can say yeah some of preterism is is helpful but otherwise as on the whole there's there's more bad than good more dangerous than helpful in my estimation uh brother alan parr a great youtuber i can i can't recommend his channel enough alan parr p-a-r-r his youtube channel is called the beat b-e-a-t he's got another chart here that i found extremely helpful that breaks down daniel's 70th week along the 49 years of rebuilding jerusalem seven weeks of years and then right after that we have the 434 years the 62 weeks that follow which is the period leading up to the coming of the prince of uh, messiah the prince and then we have that little gap in the middle there with the prophetic time of the gentiles i aka the church age which in hindsight we know must exist even if daniel didn't see it at the time and yet we do realize that it's a part of historical uh, occurrences that god god foresaw but just didn't tell the prophets about earlier and then you can see on the far right of your screen the last seven years or the 70th week which we're going to look at eventually is broken up into two periods of three and a half and three and a half years that most bible students would refer to as the seven-year tribulation i don't think the tribulation itself is seven years long but we'll talk about that later on and then i added uh well this this chart here is uh, basically a repeat of the of the familiar charts only difference is the starting point uh decree of arctic Xerxes. and then we i added a final chart this week uh, from a christian youtuber by the name of mike winger w-i-n-g-e-r winger and again very highly recommended youtube uh teacher and here's kind of a general timeline of what we've been looking at and this will kind of throw us jump us place us right into where we're uh, talking about what we're talking about tonight general timeline of this prophecy in daniel is that there's a command that goes out this is kind of the simplified version i'm trying to keep this simple for you make it not very complicated but there's the general timeline of the prophecy then there's the command that goes out there's 480 years that goes by which is 69 weeks and then jerusalem is rebuilt right seven weeks he says there in a question mark and then the messiah comes on the scene next the messiah dies for others implied fulfillment of suffering passages related to messiah like like isaiah chapter 53 meaning the language that daniel uses that he'll be cut off but not for himself and then we say that jerusalem is destroyed after that the new temple that was already rebuilt is destroyed again new temple uh, jerusalem destroyed new temple is destroyed and then we jump all the way in time past the gap to the seventh week which begins with a seven-year covenant again from daniel's perspective it almost looked like probably the whole 490 years was just going to go on go uh ahead 
without any gap. Daniel wasn't shown the gap. That was because the church age, a.k.a. the times of the Gentiles, is a mystery that God hid from the prophets. Therefore, it makes sense why Daniel wouldn't see it. And yet, that's what also creates this kind of fuzzy feeling near slash far aspect of the tail end of the prophecy, especially when we start getting down at the fourth metal, the fourth beast, and the verse 27 of Daniel 9. That's where it starts. That's why it's hard for preterists and futurists to kind of come to the same agreement. It's because the preterists are working from the idea that Daniel was seeing the whole prophecy almost as if it was going along sequentially without any breaks. And so if the preterist prefers that perspective because they're seeing that at the first century when Messiah came, there was this now aspect of the tail end of the prophecy. And yet the futurist recognizes that there's a gap and now there's a not yet aspect. Remember, there's a graphic that I'll put on the screen in post-production that shows that we're living in this overlap between the now and the not yet. The future has invaded the present. The messianic age that is still future has been inaugurated in the first century and therefore we live, we've been living in this now and not yet near far aspect of where there's an overlap, as it were, of the future has uh, already been started and yet it's not yet here yet. That's why it's that's why, from Daniel's perspective, it looks like it's just one, one, one wrong, long-running prophecy. And yet, from our perspective, we realize there's a 2,000-year gap. Both of them are accurate to some degree, and yet we have to rec- the way to reconcile those two seemingly opposing perspectives of preterism and futurism when it comes to these prophecies is to realize that there's this near-far aspect, partial fulfillment, total fulfillment, etc., etc. So, Mike Winger is simply showing us what it would look like if there was no gap. But 70 week begins with a seven-year covenant. Sacrifice stopped implies a third temple, abomination of desolation at the far end. Again, we know now from hindsight, which is always 2020, that we must have the gap because the temple has been destroyed for nearly 2,000 years. Israel got kicked out of her land for a while, so none of those details about temple sacrifices being disrupted by an Antichrist-type figure and all of these things... Nothing of that, none of that really could have made sense until Israel came back into her land, and we're still waiting for some type of temple to be rebuilt. So let's read the, the relevant passages and then jump right into the study. This is Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27, as read from the NASB version of your Bible. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Verse 26, then after the six, oops, sorry about that. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, and the final pasuk, the final verse, verse twenty-seven. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So, that's what we have to deal with. Four scant verses, remember, 
in the original version of the Hebrew that Daniel wrote down. And by this time in, in his book, he's already switched back over to Hebrew. He wrote in Aramaic for a good chunk of his, of his letter, but now he's back in Hebrew. And the, in the original Hebrew, there weren't any verse breaks. So what we're going to be finding out as we look at different versions of which I'm going to read tonight, I'm going to read the, I'm not going to read the Hebrew, it's too lengthy, but I will show you the Septuagint Greek English translation, and then I'm going to show you the Latin Vulgate from a translation of that, and then I'm going to show you a traditional Jewish 191700-year-old Jewish Publication Society version. And what we're going to be finding out is that depending on what the translator's bias is towards the text, there will be different paragraph breaks or what we might call section breaks where a period stops, a new sentence begins, or a semicolon, things like that. And it makes the prophecy either sound more like a preterist sounding prophecy or more of a futurist or some type of eclectic version with a mix. So let me read those for you real quick. Here's Daniel 9, 24 through 27 in the Septuagint. You can see the English and then Hebrew. And then you can see the Greek here, which I'm not going to read also. Instead, I just want to read the English translation from the Greek so you can see some what might be some slight differences. There are two translations here that I'm working from. The Alexandrinus translation over on the left, or in this case, it's the Old Greek. Uh, and then the on the right side is normally the Vaticanus, but this time, yes, it's still Vaticanus, but it's Brenton's, the Sir Lancelot uh, Brenton. His, he's a famous uh, uh, Septuagint translator. He translated this into English, and he's one of the more reliable, trustworthy Septuagint translators that are out there. Brenton, B-R-E-N-T-O-N, Brenton. So here's Brenton's English translation on the right, which I'm going to be using. Seventy weeks have been determined on your people and on the holy city. Pay attention to the to the commas, by the way. And on the holy city and the periods. For sin to be ended and to seal up trans... Let me try this, sorry. I want to make it large there. There we go. Seventy weeks have been determined on your people and on the holy city for sin to be ended and to seal up transgressions and to blot out the iniquities and to make atonement for iniquities and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal the vision and the prophet and to anoint the most holy. Sorry. There we go. Verse 25. And you shall know and understand that from the going forth of the command for the answer and for the building of Jerusalem until Christ the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and then and then the time shall return, and the street shall be built, and the wall and the times shall be exhausted. FYI, for those of you who are wondering, why did Brenton put Christ in there? Yes, he's a Christian translator. And is that his bias? Actually, no. The Greek word says Christos, right? Which is the Greek word for Christ, which is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the well, where we get our English word Messiah, but it simply means the anointed one. But it actually says Christos. And we'll look at the differences later on. Let's jump down to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be destroyed. Notice it doesn't say Christ there. It's because there's a different Greek word here. But after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be destroyed, even though the Hebrew was the same. The anointed one shall be destroyed, and there shall and there is no judgment in him. And he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary with the prince that is coming. They shall be cut off with a flood into the end of the war, which is rapidly completed. He shall appoint the city to desolations. And then the final verse, skipping past the Hebrew and the Greek, verse 27, And one week shall establish the covenant with many, and in the midst of the week my sacrifice and drink offering shall be taken away. Notice it says my. 
Again, this is the Greek translation, Greek text with an English translation. My sacrifice and drink offering shall be taken away, and on the temple shall be the abomination of desolations, and at the end of time an end shall be put to the desolation. Okay, so that's another reading, and we'll get to it in time, but I'm just kind of alerting to you up front now that depending on how you translate the verses, you're going to end up with something that seems more preterist versus something that seems more futurist. Let's jump over to the Latin. I'm not going to read the Latin. I can't read Latin. I probably I could probably estimate it, but I don't think my vowels would sound right. But I'm more interested in the translation from the Latin. Remember, the Latin version actually was the Bible language that was in use by the church for a good thousand years, even before English came, came along, right? The 1611 KJV or things that, we're, that we think are very authoritative. So for the longest time, the versions of the Bible that were more widely used were the original Greek and then the Latin translation, Latin Vulgate. So this is a translation from the Latin over into English, and it allows for some slightly different wording for us. Starting in verse 24, 70 weeks are shortened upon my people. Notice the use of the word shortened. That's an odd use of the verb there. 70 weeks are shortened upon thy people and upon thy holy city, that transgression may be finished, and sin may have an end, and iniquity may be abolished, and everlasting justice may be brought, and vision and prophecy may be fulfilled, and the saint of saints may be anointed. Next verse. No, verse 25. Know thou therefore, and take notice that from the going forth of the word to build up Jerusalem again unto Christ the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the walls in straightness of times. Verse 26. And after sixty-two weeks, Christ shall be slain, and the people that shall deny him shall not be his. And a people with their leader that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be waste, and after the end of the war, the appointed desolation. And the final verse. And he shall confirm the covenant with many in one week, and in the half of the week the victim and the sacrifice shall fail, and there shall be in the temple the abomination of desolation, and the desolation shall continue even to the consummation and to the end. And so that's uh, another translation that's very helpful, the Latin translation. One more translation, and then we'll jump into the commentary. This is your average Jewish translation, a very well-reliable, trustworthy Jewish Publication Society, 100 years old, JPS, 1917 JPS. Here's what it reads. There's language in here that suggests a preterist understanding, and you wouldn't know it unless you were looking for at the punctuations very carefully in some of the verses. Seven, they're still working for the same Hebrew script, but remember Hebrew doesn't have punctuation, so that's why we have differences in interpretation. Seventy weeks are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to bring for for and to forgive iniquity and to bring an everlasting righteousness and to seal vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25. Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem unto one anointed, a prince, shall be seven weeks, and for threescore and two weeks it shall be built again with broad place and moat, but in troublous times. Verse 26. And after the threescore and two weeks shall an anointed one be cut off and be no more, and the people of a prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And the final verse, verse 27, And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week, 
and for half of the week it shall cause the sacrifice and the offerings uh, the offering to cease, and upon the wing of detestable things shall be that which causeth appalment, and that until the extermination wholly determined be poured out upon that which causeth appalment. There is an interesting translation that's put together by Chabad.org that uses the word dumb one or something like that in this verse that's pretty interesting. We might get to that in time. Okay, so we've looked at a few different translations and why is that relevant for us? It's because, and I'll go ahead and tip my hand to you right up front in case you're wondering why, Ariel, did you take the time to read all those different versions? Zeroing in on verse 25, this particular version, this Jewish translation, says, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto one anointed, a prince shall be seven weeks semicolon. You see that semicolon after the word weeks there. And then the next clause reads, And for threescore and two weeks it shall be built again, comma, with broad place and moat, comma, but in troublous times. Because of that semicolon, and because of the way that the Jewish interpreters understand the time frames, remember we're talking about seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then seven weeks, right? Let me show you the chart again in case you uh, forgot already. This one, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. I said seven weeks, I apologize. Because of the breakdown that Daniel himself gives us, according to the Jewish understanding of things, something happens in seven weeks, and then there's a break. Something happens in 62 weeks, and then there's a break, and then something happens after one week. And although Christian commentators also agree with the breakdown, they disagree with exactly what happens after the end of the seven-week period and after what takes uh, happens after the end of the 62-week period. According to Christian translations, let me just show this to you, in verse 25 of most Christian translations, you'll see that it says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, semicolon. In the standard Christian understanding, the semicolon takes place after the 62 weeks. Do you see it there? However, in your Jewish translation, the semicolon takes place after the seven weeks. Now, why is that significant? Because according to the Christian translation, the events about the anointed one, a prince coming and showing up, things like that, allows for this Messiah, this anointed one, to be Jesus, who shows up after the 483 years, not after the first 49 years. Yet, according to Jewish translation, who rejects Jesus as that candidate, they're not going to put Jesus as that anointed one who shows up after the 483 years. They're going to break the time frames up so that, a dip, that we have three different anointed ones that are in this prophecy. One is perhaps maybe an anointed ruler such as Ezra or Nehemiah, someone closer to the seven-week time frame. And then we have a second one who might be the maybe Vespasian or Titus or one of the emperors, maybe even Herod, some anointed ruler, some king that lived in the first century, but definitely not Jesus. Remember, kings and prophets are also anointed ones, and that's why the, the Jewish translation opts for this particular interp interpretation. And then later on in chapter 27, verse 27, when it talks about this coming one, that this coming ruler, they look at this also as either maybe one of the Roman emperors who destroyed the temple. Nevertheless, he's a ruler type figure. So there are some important differences based on simply 
punctuation from the original Hebrew, which had none, into a modern English translation such as the kind that Jewish people read versus ones that Christians read. I wanted you guys to become aware of that. Let's jump over to the commentary parts. We're picking up this commentary from Joel Richardson. He's a Christian writer, and he writes from a futurist perspective like I do. He has some differences with the way he describes the book of Revelation and Daniel from my understanding, but for the most part, I'm using his material because I, I believe it's extremely helpful, and I find it to be quite accurate as far as I interpret it. Last week, we left off with his, his survey of the primary interpretive perspectives. That's why I prepped you using the different translations. There's the Jewish view, which has the Messiah, the Prince, being interpreted in a non-Messianic manner, meaning he's either some ruler, he's either some prophet, maybe some king who's ruling, but he's definitely not the Messiah that we know as Jesus. The end of the conclusion of the prophecy is 70 AD, just like the preterists do, and the subject of verse 27 is either Vespasian, the Roman Caesar, or Titus, his son. We then moved into looking at the preterist view. This was Joel Richardson's chart that we're looking at right now. The preterist view has the Messiah, the Prince, as interpreted as Messianic, meaning he's the Christ, the same figure that we Christians interpret. Remember, preterists are Christians. They're not rabbinic Jews. But the similarities, as I'm noticing, between the preterist view and the rabbinic Jewish position is eerily, I mean, it's scary. It's very, they're very, very similar. Other than that the Messiah, the Prince is a different person. But the terminus ad quem, the end of the prophecy is the same in Judaism as it is in the Preterist. It's 70 AD. The subject of verse 27 is either Jesus, Vespasian, or Titus. Notice those are all identical with the between the Preterism and the traditional rabbinic Jewish perspective. However, we now have the amillennials perspective, a view that I do not hold to. This is a perspective that's held by most of the orthodox types of denominations of the day, such as Catholicism, Lutheranism, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, many Presbyterians hold to the amillennialist, which, as you can hear in the name, they don't believe in a literal 1,000-year kingdom known as the millennium that's going to be established. Instead, there's this sort of spiritual kingdom that we're living in now, since Christ inaugurated it at the first century, it began in the first century, and therefore in the amillennial perspective, I'll put a little graphic on the screen in post-production, in the amillennial perspective, there's no need for Israel to be dwelling in her land. There's no need for God to have this intense interest in bringing Israel back to her knees in repentance. There's no need for a physical rapture, per se, of the church away. There's no need for a literal a tribulation period of seven years and things like that. Satan has already been bound and he'll be, he'll be released sometime in the future and wage war and bring on the arm, uh, the battle of Armageddon like we read about in Revelation chapter 20. But other than that, right now Satan is bound somehow according to the in this view. The term Messiah, the prince, is interpreted as messianic. It truly is Jesus in the amillennialist perspective, which is largely Christian. However, the weeks are often understood in a non-literal manner, so there's not really 70 weeks, there's not really 490 years. All of that is really just symbolic, like God uses the number 7 in the Bible to indicate some sort of spiritual reality, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean a literal 7 year or 70 weeks or any of that. All of that's non-literal. 70 weeks are symbolic. The terminus ad quem, which is the ending point, as opposed to the terminus a quo, which is the beginning. The terminus ad quem is either 70 AD or the return of Jesus in the 
future. So they go either one, the Obelinalist view. It has some kind of similarities to the Preterist view in this respect. The subject of verse 27 is either Christ or Titus. And you can see Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Augustine hold this view. And I didn't read these last week. All of the prophecy, according to Augustine, all of the prophecy of the 70 weeks was fulfilled at Christ's first advent. Therefore, it is not to be expected that the events will occur again at the second advent. Notice the decidedly preterist-sounding language of Augustine. Look at John Calvin. Without the slightest doubt, this prophecy was fulfilled when the city was captured and overthrown and the temple utterly destroyed by Titus, the son of Vespasian. Notice again, Calvin's decidedly preterist-sounding language. And then we have other teachers who hold to this amillennialist view, Kiel, Leupold, Young, and Baldwin. And then lastly, we have the premillennialist view. I'm going somewhat quickly through this because I want to jump into Pastor David Guzik's commentary tonight. The premillennialist view, which is the view that I myself hold to along with many classical dispensationalists. I myself am not a dispensationalist, but I believe the premillennial view is the most accurate. This view is also held by many reformers, although there were there were probably some details from the amillennialism that got pulled into it along with premillennialism. I mean, it's as confusing as that might sound, but just let me read this and then you'll understand a bit more, I hope. In the premillennial view, which when we're saying premillennial, we do believe in a literal thousand years, but we believe that the rapture and the second coming will precede the millennial. That's why we say pre-millennial. Remember, the rapture and the second coming are really two separate events. The rapture is the snatching away where we, we believers go up, and the second coming is where we come back, where we come down with Christ back down to earth. In the premillennial view, the term Messiah the Prince is interpreted as messianic, so it's a Christian view, as opposed to the standard rabbinic view up earlier, the Jewish view, where Messiah the Prince is not messianic, it's not Christ in that sense when I say messianic. Number two, the ending point, the terminus ad quem, is the future return of Christ. That's the end of Daniel's 490 years. The final ending of it is basically the ushering in of the millennial kingdom. In other words, when Daniel started interpreting and speaking these prophetic words in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, and he finished with verse 27, basically the ending point of the prophecy is the ushering in of the kingdom of God. That's why I mean by the terminus ad quem, the future return of Christ. The subject of verse 27 is the Antichrist, not Vespasian, not Titus, not someone like that. And the teachers that held to this position were Irenaeus, Hippolytus, I did read this last week, I realized it, Archer, Miller, Wood, and Walvert. All right, so let's jump down into his commentary and park out at a place where we're going to deal with later on. I don't want to deal with this right now, where he talks about the decree, and that's important, and the gap, he talks about that, and we agree that those are very important interpretive details that we should look at eventually. All right, but let's begin to look at... Let's turn now to Pastor David Guzik's Bible commentary, which is available on his website at EnduringWord.com. I can endorse this very highly. I can. I do. And I recommend everyone to go take a look at it. I like the format. I like its ease of understanding. 
And I agree with most of its theology, although Pastor Guzik doesn't hold to what we might consider the Hebraic perspective, where he believes that the law is still relevant. He also doesn't hold to a pre-wrath, like I do, I believe is a pre-tribber. But nevertheless, most of the timeline is accurate according to my understanding. The, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, 70 weeks are determined for the Jews and Jerusalem. Let's read Pastor Guzik's words. Now, this is Daniel chapter 9, only the four verses, 24, 25, 26, and 27. Seventy weeks are determined. You can see the bold blue there. That's the quote from the scripture. And then what we read afterwards are his comments. There's almost universal agreement among Bible scholars and commentators that this refers to 70 sets of seven years or weeks of years. Again, how do we know this? That the word week, which is Shavuot, let me pull up the Hebrew for you and show you just in case some people are questioning. Uh, in the Hebrew, just the first clause, let me see. Shavuim, Shivim, Nechtach al Amcha al Ir Kajika. The whole, okay, 70, let me just show you the first two words. It's probably good enough. The first two words in Hebrew, 77s or sevens totaling 70. So the first word is the word for weeks or sevens. And then the second word, reading from right to left, is the word for 70. So weeks of 70 or 70 weeks is how we smooth it out in the English. We swap the two, the, word, the syntax, the word order. And if you notice, if you're keen on looking at Hebrew, you'll notice the little dots and dashes, those little symbols underneath the letters themselves. If you'll notice, if you took those out, then the two words would look identical. They have the same consonants in the Hebrew if you if you strip away the vowel markings, which were added by the Masoretic tradition later on anyway, which means that the context tells us what these words mean, not necessarily the words themselves. So we already know from reading other parts of the Bible that the word for seven and the word for 70 often are used in conjunction to mark off what we might call the Jubilee year or the Shemitah year. The Shemitah year is a set of seven sevens totaling 49 years until a 50th year uh, where we have <coughs> where we have the Jubilee. That's, I'm sorry, that's not the Shemitah, that's the Yovel. The Jubilee, seven, 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 49 leading up to the 50, that's the Jubilee. But every seven years, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, every seventh year, God commanded Israel to observe what's called a Shemitah, which is a letting the land lie fallow, let the land rest. Don't sow it, don't produce any crops, don't work the land too hard. Let it rest for a year Every six, you can work it for six years, and on the seventh year, it's a Sabbath rest for the land so that it lies fallow, so that the crops can take a break, the land can take a break, and then you can start sowing again on that eighth year and then go for six more years. So every seventh year is a Shemitah, and we can read about this in the Torah itself, book of Leviticus, etc., etc. I don't want to get into all those details now. The germane to our study, however, is that uh, A, Daniel was a Hebrew, so he would have been familiar with the Shemitah cycle of seven years, as well as the Yovel Jubilee cycle of 
50 years, right? Every seventh year and then every 49th year or 50th year is the Jubilee. He would have been familiar with that. Notice right away then when we look at one of these charts, the very first seven weeks identically corresponds to a Yovel, a Jubilee. Seven times seven and then the 50th year would have been a Jubilee. We, we see this when we're dealing with the time frame between Passover and Pentecost. Count seven sevens until you get to the 50th day and then it's Shavuot, the 50th day. So seven times seven or 49 days and then the 50th day is the day of Pentecost, Shavuot. So the same similar time frame. Likewise, Daniel was reading the prophet of Jeremiah and he was already familiar with seven times ten or ten shemitahs or sabbatical years the punishment that israel was enduring because of disobedience to god not keep allowing the land to have its sabbath rest etc so god says fine i'm going to kick you out of land and all the while while you're out of the land the land is going to enjoy ten sabbath cycles ten times seven equals seventy thus 70 years was the time period of the exile. So Daniel already had these thoughts in his mind when he's writing the words 70 weeks or 77s. It's by context also that we can determine that the things that are decreed in this prophecy cannot possibly have taken place in 70 literal weeks, which is, if you do look at the math on a calendar, is not much more than like a year and a third or something, a year, you know, a little, little less than a year and a half. There's no way they could have rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple and it got destroyed and all of these things happen in that short amount of time. It just didn't happen. So context and logic, common sense demand that these are seven years, weeks of years, the word 70 weeks there being 70 weeks of years. And they're all complete sevens, which is helpful to understand why there's the 70th full week. Okay, so going back over to enduring word. In ancient Hebrew, weeks simply refers to a unit of seven. The Hebrew word here is often used to mean a unit of seven days, but it may also be used for a unit of seven years. He lets us know in point number two, the Jews had sabbatical years, which I just referred to the Shemitah, by which their years were divided into weeks of years, as in this important prophecy, each week containing seven years. That's according to Clark. We have another... Point three, Genesis 29 is an example of using this ancient Hebrew word Shavua for both seven days and seven years in the same context. And if you go back and look up that passage, you'll see that in the Hebrew, it's simply the word Shavua. But by context, you have to determine, is it seven days or seven years? It's the same Hebrew word, Shavua, just means seven, meaning generically. It might be best even to think of it as the word, the, what's the word? Mike Winger reminded me of this. Heptad, I believe, H-E-P-T-A-D. The word heptad means seven, a unit of seven, without referring to what the seven it really is. It's simply the generic word heptad. This is similar to our English word dozen, right? When you use the word dozen, what is it referring to? Could be a dozen eggs, could be a dozen donuts. You don't know until you ask the rest of the sentence, until you examine the further context. Does a dozen refer to eggs or donuts, or could be a dozen children, right? Could be a dozen tribes of Israel, like we, like we see in the Bible. A dozen refers to 12. And then we even have a, an odd baker's dozen where there's 13, right? That's really goofy. But the, the point I'm trying to bring up is that the word dozen doesn't tell us what the object being counted is. It's a generic word for the number. Same with the word shavua in the Hebrew, the root word of 70 and the word seven. 
is the root word Shavua, and so we don't know, is it weeks, is it years, is it days? We have to tell from context. Let's keep reading Pastor Guzik. Point B, for your people and for your holy city, there's a quote from the verse. The 70 weeks were focused upon Daniel's people, the Jews, and his holy city, Jerusalem. This is important because of the direct interaction that God's going to be dealing with Israel during these 490 years that he's prophesying through the prophet Daniel. This doesn't, however, mean that God isn't dealing with the Gentiles. In fact, most of the interaction with the pagan nations around Israel also takes place during this, oddly enough, 490-year interaction that God does with Israel. So it's almost as if God is using both parts of history, the Jewish people on one end and the Gentile peoples on the other, and he's working them together, but in separate programs. So thus we see Israel is being dealt with in the timetables, and yet the surrounding nations are the ones that are interacting with Israel for instance, kicking Israel out of land, Babylon, Medes and the Persians, Greece and then Rome, occupying Israel, destroying temples, etc., etc. So God's using the surrounding nations to get Israel's attention. And yet at the same time, the 490 years is for your people, Daniel. It's not necessarily a prophecy for the Gentiles. Indeed, the gap itself, the 2,000-year gap that we're living in right now, known as the times of the Gentiles, that gap itself is longer than the 490 years. That's why Daniel didn't see the gap, and because of the mystery of the the mystery of salvation, the mystery of the Gentiles, the mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. That's why we see this longer gap, which in one sense is not included in the 490 years, and in another sense it stretches out the 490 years. It does something wonky with the timeline. So I hope you guys aren't getting lost with that now and not yet language there. Point I under this subpoint B for David Guzik. Unless the church has become Israel, it is not in view here. The church isn't in view. Talbot calls the 70 weeks, quote, God's calendar for Israel, end quote, in the sense that it does not focus on the Gentiles or the church. All right, let's look at point number two, which is verse 24b. What will be accomplished in the 70 weeks? According to Pastor Guzik, look at these six bullet points. These are very, very important points that we see are basically an overview. Daniel's prophecy gives us kind of an overview of everything that God is going to accomplish to Israel or do for Israel in the 490 years, which means some of these are not finished yet. Although, as we're going to begin to see, there were partial slash near fulfillments in the first century with the death of Messiah and the bringing in of the gospel and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. Look at these six. God told Daniel that these 490 years are decreed to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy. So the, I'm sorry, and to anoint the most holy. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Notice, as we're going to begin to read down through these uh, and outline them, notice that, again, if you take the preterist position, that all of these were not only inaugurated and initiated by Christ, but they were completed by Messiah in the first century, and therefore, all of them are really done. We don't really have to look forward to any of them in the full preterism, hyper-preteristic perspective. And even in much of the partial preterism, a lot of these were still very significantly 
happen, happening events in the first century, 70 AD, etc., etc. However, in the futurist position, what we do is we look at these six. I'm giving you kind of the answer up front, and then I'll go back and flesh it out. In the futurist perspective, which accounts for a near slash far or now slash not yet, right, the two mountain peaks, in the futurist perspective, we realize that these six were, in fact, had partial fulfillment in the first century, but not total fulfillment. They had inauguration-type fulfillment. They're on a spiritual level fulfillment in Messiah, and yet in the history and the actual fulfillment and the actual happening of things in the fullness of time, these six are really awaiting the future. So let's look at them now. Let's flesh them out. Point A, to finish the transgression. This says that transgression itself will be finished. Taken literally, this means establishing an entirely new order on earth with an end to man's rebellion against God. Question, has that happened yet? Answer, partially it was fulfilled when Messiah brought the transgression to an end by his death on the cross. He finished the work that he needed to do as far as dying for the transgression of humans and Israel in particular, mankind. But the new order on earth has not been established physically. He brought the kingdom of God spiritually to earth, but we're still lacking the physical kingdom in all of its aspects. Let's look at the subpoints. Point I. The culmination of appointed years with witness, will witness the conclusion of man's transgression or rebellion against God, a, a development most naturally entered into with the establishment of an entirely new order on earth. This seems to require nothing less than the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth, according to Archer. Point B. To make an end of sins. Again, Jesus' death on the cross in the first century brought this aspect to us completely, yet spiritually. And yet, last time I checked, we still have sin in the earth today, which means it's not been brought fully in, this, in its most physical sense. Taking these words at face value, this means not only the end of the guilt of sin, but an end of sin itself. It means to seal up or to restrain sins. This looks to a new redeemed world. That's point B. Point C, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Man's iniquity must be reconciled to God's justice and holiness. This work was clearly accomplished at the cross. And yet again, when we're dealing with Israel, a lot of these are still awaiting a future literal fulfillment. Take a look at Israel today and tell me that she's already reconciled her iniquity to God. No, she has not. God did his part. He brought Messiah. He brought the perfect sacrifice. And all Israel needs to do is to step by faith into that perfect sacrifice. But until she does, she still awaits a future fulfillment of some of these details. Point D, to bring in everlasting righteousness. One might take this in an individual sense, which is true. But there have always, but there have always been individ, righteous individuals. Taking the statement at face value, this means a new order of society brought in by the Messiah on a corporate level. So again, Israel, remember, what did God say? Daniel, these 490 years are for you and for your people and for the city of Jerusalem. Primarily, Israel is the focus of these 490 years, although there will be interaction with the Gentile surrounding nations. But primarily, the prophecies are for Israel, which means when we're talking about bringing in everlasting righteousness, national Israel has not yet achieved this. But we know according to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and according to Ezekiel chapter 34, 
4, I believe. I'm drawing this from memory. I'm drawing a blank at the moment. But we know from these passages that there will be this new covenant that God makes with corporate Israel, which has already been made through Messiah and can be enacted on an individual basis. Every Christian listening to the sound of my voice is a part of the new covenant. Amen? Amen, right? If you're a genuine Christian and you're listening to this podcast or you're watching this YouTube video, then you are a part of the new covenant. You are a member of the new covenant on an individual basis. However, national Israel still lacks that membership. When will she get this? When everlasting righteousness is brought in for her on a national level. This is still future people. Read Romans chapter 11. So let's keep reading. We're almost done with this part. We're going to have to break this off in the middle and pick us up next week. Point E in Pastor David Guzik's commentary to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Point E, to seal up vision and prophecy. This speaks of both the ending and the fulfillment of prophecy, concluding the final stage of human history and culminating with the reign of the Son of God. Again, the six points that we're examining right now in chapter 9, verse 24 primarily of Daniel all have to deal with items or details, God's working among humans that were partially fulfilled in the first century and yet await their final fulfillment in the last days, which we believe is still future. Also, it's important to recognize that when I say partially fulfilled, on the spiritual level, they are completely fulfilled. I do not want you to misunderstand this very important point. We're not waiting for Yeshua to make an end for sin on the spiritual level. He has already made an end for sin. The work on the cross is complete. Do not misunderstand this point. I am not saying that we're waiting for something on the spiritual level. Everything Israel needs in the spiritual level is here for her. It's already been provided by Messiah. The atonement has been made. He only had to die once. He went to the cross once. He poured out his life force once. And he sent the Holy Spirit at Shavuot. All of that has already happened. Israel doesn't need to wait for that to happen again. What they need to do is fall on their knees in repentance and accept that atonement and allow the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts and to cleanse them of their national sin. That's what we're looking at. Point number I says it must include his enthronement, right, according to Archer. And then point F, to anoint the most holy. Taken at its simple, literal meaning, this refers to a place, not a person. Although, some English translations will say to anoint the most holy one. Others will say to anoint the most holy place. So the Hebrew doesn't have a supplied noun at the very end. Let me just show you this. Jump over to the end of the prophecy in Hebrew. Right, this final clause right here in the Hebrew. Velim shoach kodesh kadashim. To anoint the holy of holies. That's literally, or the, that's quite literally what it says. The first word is the verb, and the last two are nouns. Velim shoach. The root word of lim shoach is where we get the noun for Messiah, Mashiach anointed, right? Anointed one in the noun, but limshok is the verbal form. The limshok kodesh kadashim literally would say to anoint the most holy place. I say place here because the, the last two words, kodesh kadashim, is what we normally call the holy of holies in the ark or in the temple. 
right? You know, you guys have heard of the Holy of Holies, that inner chamber where the Ark of the Covenant rested. So I believe that the best translation is to anoint the, anoint the holy, the most holy place, like the NASB opts for here, to anoint the most holy place. Indeed, many of the translations, such as the LXX, the Septuagint, says to anoint the most holy. The Latin has to, and the saint of saints may be anointed. Not sure why they have that. It's kind of odd. The JPS translation that we had read earlier has to anoint the most holy place. But some English translations will say to anoint the most holy one, as if we're talking about the anointing of Messiah himself. Which, again, spiritually speaking, this would put the focus back on Jesus himself, right? To anoint the most, the holy, the most holy one. But Guzik reminds us that, and in closing, I'll begin to draw this to a close. Taking its literal meaning, this refers to a place, not a person. There is a most holy place, the most holy place of the temple that will be anointed and blessed. So, yes, was that, did that happen in the first century? Was the temple anointed? Well, yes, it was anointed, but there was there's a sense in which the anointing was removed because of Israel's defilement of, of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the, that particular that particular disbelief in one spiritual sense defiled the temple. And so now the temple was in a state where it must be ruined. It's Ichabod, the glory has departed. And Jesus must say to it, <clears throat> I'm leaving your house to you desolate, and you're not going to see me again until you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel, your house is being left to you desolate. A desolate house is a temple without the glory of God. It is not an anointed place anymore. But there's one sense in which it did enjoy an anointing because we know that Messiah visited the temple and he frequently spoke there and taught there. And I believe if it was a defiled place, he wouldn't have done so. But nevertheless, we can talk about those details later on. What we're talking, however, though, is the literal fulfillment of a temple being anointed after it has been defiled. So the the order is important. A temple that's built and then desecrated unto the Lord, I'm sorry, um, consecrated unto the Lord is an, a temple that will be anointed. If we're talking about the literal fulfillment at the end of days, then we're talking about a, a final temple that's rebuilt, an antichrist who defiles it, then it gets destroyed again in all of the aftermath of all the campaigns, uh, you know, uh, Battle of Armageddon, etc., etc. And then Israel is in, and Jerusalem is in ruins. And then what happens? Jesus returns bodily with the saints, establishes his thousand-year kingdom, and has to do what? Rebuild another kingdom, a messianic kingdom, and thus the holy place will be anointed again. So that's what we're really talking about. Look at these points, and I'll close with this. Point I, taken as a whole, Gabriel made a remarkable announcement to Daniel. He told him that each of these amazing things would happen within the period of seven weeks. Point number two, looking back in history, we can only say these things are already fulfilled if we ignore their plain literal meaning and give them a spiritualized meaning that replaces their plain meaning. Some believe that these promises were fulfilled generally in the spread of the gospel over the centuries, but this belief neglects the plain and simple meaning of these words. And with that, we'll draw this study to a close. We'll pick this up next week, starting with verse number 25, where Pastor David Guzik is going to begin to give us the details of this amazing prophecy from the book of Daniel. But that'll do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, 
Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Arvind Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes and continue looking at these deeply important passages as we entertain this idea, is God Trinity? Is God unity? Is God, how many parts are there to God, right? So, we are working from this idea that biblicalunitarianism.com takes the position that God is unity, that he's numerically one, that there's only one of him being wise, and therefore there's only one of him person wise. There are no three persons, etc., etc. That's the biblical unitarian or non-trinitarian perspective that we're contrasting using the trinitarian model that I hold to myself. I'm a messianic Jew. I believe in the trinity just like Orthodox Christianity believes in. I use the word Orthodox with a small o. I'm not an Orthodox Greek Orthodox believer or anything like that. I use the word Orthodox in the sense of original biblical Trinitarianism. So we've got Deuteronomy 6 pulled up in front of us. Let me read the verses for you once again. Moses writes, verse 6, oops, let's back up to verse 4. There we go. Moses writes, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how many of God is there? Moses says one. Now, the Hebrew says, let me show it to you. The Hebrew says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Question, how many are there in the Hebrew? The answer, 
Echad. God is Echad. But what does the word Echad mean? Let's jump into it and find out. If we pull this passage up in different versions, like I've done in the past, we can see in the Hebrew, Echad means one. In the Greek, Ace, Esti, is the Greek there, is one or exists as one. What we're finding is that most naturally, what the verse is telling us is that there is one God, there's one God alone. Listen up, Israel. There's only one God, and He alone is the one true God. You are to serve Him alone. You are to love Him, right? The verse goes on to talk about loving Him with all your heart and your soul, your might, etc., etc. You shall not divide your loyalty between God and other so-called gods or other beliefs in God, other deities that are recognized as God or referred to as gods by other people groups. In reality, God is telling Israel there's only one God. Here's where it gets a little challenging. Yes, there's only one God. Monotheists affirm one God. Biblical Unitarians affirm one God. Trinitarians affirm one God. However, the verse does not say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. The context demands that the Lord alone is one God, that He alone is the unique God, the single God that truly exists. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, there is only one. There's only one true God, the Lord alone, the Lord, the unique one. He alone is the one true God. And yet, as we encounter the historical occurrences of the New Testament times, first century when Yeshua lived, and the subsequent writings that came afterwards, the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Testament, we then begin to realize that this one God is diverse and that He came to us in the person of Yeshua, the human being. The Incarnation reveals to us that God is complex in His nature. He's one God, and yet He's three persons. There's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit. Father is the source. The Son is He who was eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit is He who is eternally proceeds from the Father. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're talking about three persons, not three gods, like James White is fond of saying, a popular Trinitarian author, one what and three who's. Now, biblical Unitarianism is going to object. So what we're looking at, let me jump into where we left off last week. What we're talking about is that God is one, Echad, and yet he's not Yahid. So let's look at this. The 13 principles of Jewish faith according to Rabbinic Judaism, right? We got 13 principles of Jewish faith. Maimonides, the great codifier of Jewish Torah law, Jewish philosophy, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, otherwise known as Maimonides or the Rambam. Let's pick up this brief look at what Maimonides taught the Jewish people and continues to have impact on the Jewish people down through today as seen through the lens of a very well resourced website by the name of Chabad.org. This is a rabbinic Jewish source. They are not Christian. They do not believe in a Trinitarian God. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So listen up. The Rambam compiled what is what he or Maimonides compiled what is referred to as the the Shlosha Asar Ikarim, the thirteen fundamental principles of the Jewish faith, as derived from the Torah. Right. Let me see if I can give me a second. I might just blow that up absurdly large. No, that doesn't work for me. We're gonna leave it at that. 
And this, these 13 principles are preserved for us in his writings. Let me just jump right into them and notice what he says in ver, in not in verse, in uh, in point number two. Well, let me back up. Point number one, he says, I believe with a perfect faith. That's how it reads out of the Hebrew. But in the English, it translates as, we believe in the existence of the Creator who is perfect in every manner of existence and is the primary cause of all that exists. By the way, we Christians would primarily believe in that as well. Some of these are straight out of the Bible, so we don't have any problem with them. But look at point number two. We believe that the the belief in God's absolute and unparalleled unity. <clears throat> and in the English, it simply says unity. Right. But if we look at this in a different reference, a different source, let me turn to a Hebrew for Christians.com, the word, the number four. And this is a Christian source, but it's talking about the same 13 principles, the Shlosha Asar Ikarim, the 13 principles of the Jewish faith. And when we drop back down, it's point number two, God is unique and one. So let me click on that. And this is the second principle. And if you scroll down, we can see we can see the English and we can see the Hebrew. I believe with a complete faith that the Creator, blessed he, blessed be His name, He is unique in His likeness. He is unique in His likeness. There is no, and there is no, let's try that again. I believe with complete faith that the Creator, blessed, blessed is His name, He is unique and there is no uniqueness like His. So we're talking about unique. He is unique. What does it mean he's unique? The Hebrew has the word yahid when it says he is unique. I can't highlight it because this website doesn't allow me to highlight, but I'll bring it up in a different version here for you to see. So Maimonides uses this word, not echad, but this word yahid. Let's bring up um, another source. Yahid. You can see the two words there on my screen. Yahid would be transliterated Y-A-C-H-I-D. Comparatively, the word Echad would be transliterated as E-C-H-A-D. So Echad versus Yahid, two different words. So Maimonides says that God is Yahid, right? This word Yahid, Y-A-C-H-I-D, Strong's number 3173. It is a biblical word. Let's blow that part up for you. Yahid, the adjective, substant, uh, substantive. Yahid, only, only one, solitary. And this word can be translated as lonely, one child, only, only son. We see this word in use in, for instance, Genesis. Let me scroll to it here. Genesis 22.2, when God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son whom you love. Speaking of Isaac. This is where God is commanding Abraham to go up to the mountain and to sacrifice his son, right? To slay his son until the angel of the Lord stops him. But wait a minute. At this point in time, Abraham has two sons, right? He has Ishmael, who is the older, firstborn, and he has Isaac, who is the younger, the secondborn. However, only one of Abraham's sons was born through Sarah. The other came through Hagar, which means... The father is the same, but the mothers are different. Another significant difference is that Hagar was born through natural means. Nothing supernatural about it. Abraham slept with Hagar, and they produced offspring. His name was Ishmael. Nothing unusual about that, 
right? Abraham's body was working, and Hagar's body was in perfect working condition. However, when it came to Ishmael, I'm sorry, when it came to Isaac and Sarah, Abraham's wife, not his handmaiden, but his wife, Sarah's body was already past childbearing age. Likewise, so was Abraham's. What happened? They got together and supernaturally, they had a child named Isaac. And thus, Isaac is the miracle baby. And so when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, bincha et yechidcha, asher ahava, ahavta, take your son, your, and I'll highlight it this time, your only son, yechidcha, he's saying your unique son, your only son contextually, according to a certain set of conditions, the context being your only son by Sarah, your only son by miracle, your only son by old age, etc., etc. So it doesn't mean your only physical son. Abraham had two. But it means your unique son according to a certain set of conditions. So why am I bringing up this difference? Why are we highlighting this? Let's read this little chart here and you'll explain why. I pulled this from a, a, a just a web source. You can Google search this. Trinity, oneness and unity, not in number. Yahid versus Echad. Here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Echad, right? Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. It does not say, listen very closely, biblical Unitarian. It does not say, here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is unique and only one, numerically one, only one person, i.e., the Hebrew does not read, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Yahid. Right? Let's go back and look again. Make sure I'm checking. Make sure I got it right. Oops. Didn't want that. We want this. Right? What does it say? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai. And I'll highlight it for you. Adonai Echad. It does not say Adonai Yahid. I'll show you the simple form so you can follow along. It does not say Adonai Yahid. That's not what the Shema says. Which means Rashi is teaching something that's not entirely biblical according to what text we find in the Bible. Look at this chart again. Yahid versus Echad, the most important verse Jews memorized in the Bible, was Deuteronomy 6.4. Here is Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The Hebrew being Echad. There are a few words in Hebrew that the Holy Spirit could have used a word, the, the Holy Spirit could have used a word that has one exclusive meaning, the numeric solitary oneness of God, Yahid or bad. Oddly enough that it means bad there. But the point I'm trying to make is that God didn't tell the Holy, or the Holy Spirit and God the Father didn't write, didn't tell Moshe to write, Heroes are the Lord of God, the Lord is Yahid. Instead, the Holy Spirit chose to use the Hebrew word echad, which is used most often as a unified one and sometimes as numeric oneness. For example, when God said in Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, basar echad, it's the same word for one that was used in Deuteronomy 6.4. And then in closing, this is most troubling for Jews and anti-Trinitarians, since the word yachid, the main Hebrew word for solitary oneness, is never used in reference to God. And that, indeed, is factual. If you look up the word Yahid, let's go back to this Strong's Concordance, and I go over to the English Concordance usage, shows up in Genesis 2 or 22, uh, a few different times when God's talking with Abraham, shows up in the book of Judges, 
chose from the book of Psalms, right? And the book of Psalms, Psalm, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Amos, Zechariah, and that's it. And none of those cases has it talking about God being Yahid. All of those are just talking about aspects or nouns or objects that are uniquely singular in their existence. Like from context, Abraham had two physical sons, but only one of them was unique. One of them was Yahid, numerically one in the sense that one came from Sarah, his wife. Hey, Abraham, how many wives do you, um, how many sons do you have from Sarah at this point? Abraham would say, I have Yahid. I have only one. Numerically one, God. There's only one son that came from Sarah. Okay, that's the one I want you to take up to the mountain and sacrifice. So the English loses this sometimes. Take your son, your only son, Yahid, that one. Yeah. Okay. So why are we bringing this up? Again, Biblical Unitarianism wants us to believe somehow that God is numerically one, that he cannot be three persons. But we're finding over and over again that this is simply not the case. Let's jump into some commentaries, and then we will finish out by looking at some verses. I don't know how far I'll get into this commentary. This first one is from Tim Haig. I think I have two from Tim Haig. But this first one talks about this idea of Echad and Yahid again. Let me blow that up a little bit for us. This is from one of his Torah parashah commentaries that you can buy. It's not available for, well, I think it is available for free online. online. I, I, I need to do some looking again, but I, I purchased this one myself. But let's, here's, what, here's what Tim has to say about the Yahid Nechad discussion that we've just been having. Quote, the declaration of God's character continues with the statement, Adonai is one. So Tim is commenting on the Shema passage that we're looking at now. Ramban explained to us in his interpretation of the word Echad when in his 13 principles he exchanged the word Echad with Yahid, singular. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is singular. Or, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is numerically one. That's what Maimonides is trying to explain to Jewish people. Again, this is in line with their rejection of Trinity. This is in line with their rejection of Messiah as, as the incarnate God. Tim continues, in reaction to the Christian doctrine of a triunity, which Rambam misunderstood to mean three gods, he emphasized rather the singularity of God's being. Let me stop and interject. If we're dealing with the topic of are there one God or are there three gods, then absolutely we affirm that there's only one God. We Trinitarians, we Christians, stand on the same side as rabbinic Jews, as national Israel, that there is only one God. We don't affirm that there are three gods. That is absolute heresy that there would be three gods. Understand what I'm saying? So make sure you have your language accurate. Make sure you understand the context when you're talking with people about Trinity. If they ask you to believe in Trinity and you say yes and they shake their head in, in disbelief and disgust and walk away, you might want to ask them what part of Trinity is too hard to understand? What part of it is heretical? What part of it is, is non-biblical? If they say, well, Trinity means three gods, or a three-headed God, or one God with three masks, or three modes, or something else like that, well, then politely correct them, okay? So begin to articulate your Trinity accurately. That's why we're having these studies on the issues of Trinity, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and the debates between Unitarians and Trinitarians, because we're trying to disambiguate the language. We're trying to make things plain. We're trying to avoid ambiguity and equivocation and things like that. So back to Tim Haig. So 
Ramban, Rambam is utilizing or highlighting or emphasizing the oneness of God uh, as against to a supposed three-headed God or three gods. So for that effort, I would applaud Rambam, Rambam if that's what he means. However, listen that what Tim Haig says, but I'm convinced that singularity is not the primary use of the word achad in our passage, meaning, uh, again, Rambam was probably writing in reaction against not just Christians saying that God is three, but some Christians not articulating that God is really one and yet three persons. So maybe Rambam didn't really understand Trinity either. I'm, I'm quite certain he, he didn't. And yet, Tim Haig says, I'm convinced that singularity is not the primary issue of the word achad in our passage. Tim continues, it is true that the word can have the sense of unity, right? Genesis 2.24. And I agree with that. Most messianics would try to highlight that aspect. Hey, echad means unity, right? Two people, man, woman, come together, besar echad, one flesh. And so just like that, God has Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They all come together, one God. Yes, this is true. But when we're looking just at the Shema itself, is that what God was emphasizing? Is God trying to explain to us, hey, Israel, listen up. I'm one, yet three, yet one. Or was there something more in the passage or more, uh, what we might say, foundational in the passage that God was trying to get, get across? So listen to what Tim says. It's true that the words can have the sense of unity, like in Genesis, but again, while this may have some bearing upon our text, this is Tim talking. He says, I don't think it is the primary meaning here. Rather, the context would emphasize that the meaning of echad here is unique. That is, there's no other God, and therefore there's no compulsion to divide one's loyalty, one's service, and worship with any other God. In fact, Tim continues, since the uniqueness of God's being is everywhere affirmed in the scriptures, right, Isaiah 45, etc., to confess that another God exists or to act as though one does is idolatry and denies the very essence of the one true God. One simply cannot worship God as one of many, like like henotheism is henotheism. Henotheism uh, uh, is like the belief in one God out of many, where one is a hierarchy, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons talk about multiple gods. Mormonism maybe not so much Jehovah's Witness, but we also see this in other religions, like I think where there are pantheons of gods. We have multiple gods, a top god, and then like a like a chief god, a boss god, as it were, and then lesser gods below that, innumerable. That's henotheism. And we're talking about how that is heresy. We do not recognize that there's one god out of many. We don't worship God as one god out of many gods, as if there's a greater Yahweh and a lesser Yahweh. That's heretical right? There's one all-powerful God, and that's it. And somehow we must understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all this one God. They share the one essence amongst themselves, and yet there's three persons equally powerful, and yet we have that hierarchy in the, in, in the sense of personhood. Mystery, yes. So Tim says, we confess, if, if one would confess that another God exists or to act as though one does, this is idolatry and it denies the very essence of the one true God. One simply cannot worship God as one out of many. Such a belief is to deny him. By his own definition, Tim says, one of the core aspects of his character is that he exists without rivals. He is alone the God of the universe. All others are the fabrication of man's depraved and wayward mind. 
let me see where how far I want to read down through this okay two more paragraphs and then I think we'll finish tonight Tim continues, the need to understand the makeup or component parts of the person of God does not enter into the discussion of him until the time of the Greek church fathers. He's speaking about Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. We're not talking about the other parts for the moment. Meaning, if we go back and look at Biblical Unitarianism's original answer at their website, they highlight the fact that the Deuteronomy passage is dealing with one God, the singular God. And to the degree that they're talking about that there's only one God that exists, I applaud their answer. I affirm their answer. I agree with it. I want biblical Unitarians to understand that there's much more in common that I have with them as a Trinitarian than they would care to even admit. So when we're talking about the oneness of God, the monotheistic belief that there's only one God, I, as a Trinitarian, a Messianic Jew, I fully affirm what Biblical Unitarians believe, as well as Rabbinic Jews, National Israel, I affirm what they believe as well. There's one true God and only one true God. I differ where they describe this God in terms of numerically one as over and against the three persons. So when they start denying personhood, that's where we part ways. Me and the Biblical Unitarians and me and the Rabbinic Jews. So guys understand? Tim says, the need to understand the makeup or components of the person of God does not enter into the discussion of him, i.e. in the Deuteronomy passage, until the time of the Greek church fathers. For the fact that God declared himself invisible and thus impossible for man to see, but yet he shows up, quote-unquote, as a man in Genesis 18, or as the angel of the Lord in Genesis 38, does not bother the Hebrew mind. We talked about how that the Hebrew mind can live with paradox or with Greek, uh, I'm sorry, with Hebrew tension, affirming two truths that seemingly contradict, but in the Hebrew mind, we're okay with. No explanation is given and no explanation is needed for the Hebrew. He simply affirms both of them. That no man can see God and live, yet Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders not only see God, but even eat with them, right, in Exodus 24, is, in the Hebrew mind, in, no, in need of no explanation. Right? Amazing. They simply accept mystery and, as majesty and worship God as mysterious. Right? We could learn a lesson from the Hebrews. These apparent contradictions, Tim continues, are part and parcel of the Hebrew way of looking at the world, for when opposites appear, they only pull against each other to bring the truths into focus. They pull each, let's try that again, they only pull each against the other to bring the truth into focus. That's an interesting analogy there, I've never heard that one before. Tim continues, but the Greek mind could not allow such contradictions, not Greek language, just Greek thought, Greek mindset, Greek philosophical, philosophical perspective. The Greek mind cannot allow such contradictions to stand in its sequential logic or what we might call linear logic. So let me digress for a split second. When we're talking about Greek modes of thinking, when we're talking about the ancient schools of philosophy and the school of thought that was prevalent in the early centuries, both prior to Messiah and continued into the first century, and now permeates much of Western civilization, we describe what's known as linear logic or line logic or Greek logic. Think of a set of dominoes. You, you tap the first domino, and as long as they're lined up correctly, then the first will knock over the second, which will hit the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and it'll keep going in a line. That's what I mean by linear. So progress is made by simply tapping the first one and watching the chain reaction. That's Greek model way of thinking. It's progress. It's preferred because you have action moving forward in progressive fashion. Compare and contrast that with what 
Hebrews knew as block logic or Hebrew logic or Hebrew thought where we have almost like Brady Bunch boxes, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We have different blocks of information that seemingly contain self-contained information, but when compared to the box next to it, seemingly contradict with one another. So if you compare box against box or block against block, then they have separate information, but taken as a whole, then they can maybe convey a, a complete message, a unified message, a composite message or something to that effect. So that's what we mean by linear logic, which is Greek versus block logic, which is Hebrew. So Tim's going to elaborate on this for us. The Greek mind could not allow such contradictions to stand in its sequential logic. An explanation must be given, right? In other words, the Greek fathers, the church fathers who inherited the apostolic tradition that was passed down from the original Hebrew authors, the original Jewish apostles, the original 12, and then Apostle Paul, etc., etc., the subsequent disciples of the disciples of the disciples and the later Greek. So we've got increasingly Greek members of the church coming in and fewer and fewer Jewish thinkers around in the, the early churches to share their opinions. So Greek thought began to permeate the original first century churches, second, third, fourth, up until today. And thus, when we came to trying to understand Trinity, more and more philosophical thought that was borrowed from the Greek academies came into the discussion so that we end up with copious amounts of discussions around the creeds, second, third, fourth centuries, to where finally the creeds were codified and put into writing and it marked out that which was orthodox and separated from that which was heresy, such as the original modalism heresies, the original Arianism heresies, and things like that. Orthodox Trinitarianism became the established creedal formulas that we now have in the Athanasian creeds, the, the Apostles' creeds, the Nicene creeds, things like that. Tim continues, this so-called, thus the so-called Trinity doctrine was formulated with terms like essence and substance to attempt to give an explanation of what all agreed, and we, and if we're fair, all agreed, what all agree, and if we're fair, all agreed is, was a mystery and beyond human comprehension. So there's, there's a sense that Trinity is mystery and you can't unravel it. And if you pull on that thread, you're really going to do damage to the mystery that God gave us. On the one hand, it's mystery, just leave it alone, we can't understand it. Just go with what the Bible says, that's enough language for us. On the other hand, the Greek fathers sought to supply language in a defensive posture to mark out heresy from orthodoxy and make sure that the followers weren't following off into the dish of heresy. So I applaud what the church fathers did. I'm not completely against what they did. However, we need to understand perhaps maybe some of the motives and why maybe there may have been reason maybe to just not try to pull so hard on mystery. That's what Tim's trying to go get at here. Tim says, yet for the Greek mind to leave something as important as the nature of God's character to the realm of unexplained mystery was to waffle, quote unquote, in one's faith and simply could not, could not be allowed. So he's kind of poking fingers, kind of taking light jabs at the efforts of the early patristic fathers, the Greek writers, to try and unravel mystery when perhaps, according to Tim, maybe they didn't need to go that far. He says, this is Tim, the 
Interesting, isn't it, that for centuries, yea, millennia, the Hebrew people never considered the problem of God's character with his Greek mind. He revealed himself not in ontology, the essential reality of things, but in deeds, in his salvific activity towards Israel. And then in closing, we'll read this final paragraph, then we'll call it quits for tonight. Tim says, Thus the use of echad here, while perhaps expressing the sense of unity, cannot be understood primarily by this definition for the simple reason that such a meaning was entirely out of the sphere of necessity for the Hebrew mind. One could speculate that unity enters into the meaning here on the basis of the pagan nations who manufactured a God for differing emotions, anger, wrath, love, kindness, etc., and that Hashem was one in the sense of expressing all of the, these toward mankind, but, Tim concludes, even this is removed from the words of the Tanakh. Rather, it seems the best explanation for Echad here is to understand its meaning to be unique, i.e. that God is the only God and that therefore it is futile to divide one's loyalty or covenant faithfulness between the true God and false gods that don't even exist. What I was going to do, uh, but I won't do it, I'll wait for further studies. I was going to jump through some passages out of the Apostolic Scriptures and show you how that by the time the Incarnation had taken place and the writers had, be had already interacted with Yeshua and He had already ascended into Heaven and they began to write down what they had experienced, right? The Apostles as well as the, as all, as well as the Apostle Paul, but the disciples, the Twelve, and we end up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and the rest of the writings, then we find that the apostolic scriptures don't seem to have a problem to try to unravel the mystery. They simply affirm it, and yet at the same time, explain that Jesus is the one Lord who exists right alongside the one Lord who is God himself. Remember what the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Where we have the words, God, which is Elohim, and the word Lord, which is Yahweh, both existing in the same passage. And yet, I was going to show you this in Paul in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't have a problem saying that there's one Lord and one God, and he's talking about Yeshua and things like that. For us, there exists this one and one. And he's clearly harking back to the Shema. I'll, I'll deal with that in a different day. I don't want to drag this on too much further, because I think you guys are finally getting the idea. There are lots of passages that use the word one. Jesus himself says that I and the Father are one in the book of John. And yet, if you're looking at Jesus, are you looking at God? Well, in one sense you are, but in another sense you aren't. Uh, there's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Lord is referred to as the Spirit, and the Spirit is referred to as the Lord. We can look at that in time. Romans chapter 8 also talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Messiah, where we have this overlapping of not just the word Lord, but Spirit. So, what we're beginning to see is that there are passages that help us to understand that when we're talking about one God, one Lord, one Spirit, the Biblical Unitarian, and I'm saying this in closing, the Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe that they, these are numerically one. There's numerically one God, one Lord, and one Spirit, and they're all referring to this numerically single, unique being who exists alone apart from any other persons of God. So, Jesus is a human being, and the Spirit of God is simply the being known as God, according to the Unitarian model, the Biblical Unitarian model. But we're seeing that from the Apostolic Scriptures, this isn't always neatly drawn out. It's, there's a little bit more nuance to those words, God, Lord, and Spirit, more than the Biblical Unitarian wants to seem to admit at times. And then lastly, we were going to look at 
I was going to show you some different passages, how that God, and we'll get to this one in time, God not only speaks of himself in plural terminology, like in Genesis 1.26, let, let us make man in our image, right? Us, our, and yet there are places where the human authors who interact with God also use plural pronouns when referring to the singular God. And we'll get to that in time. I won't show you that to you tonight, but there's one that shows up in Genesis 20. There's one that shows up in Genesis 35, Genesis 28, uh, 2 Samuel 7, things like that. Places where not just God speaks of himself in using plural pronouns, but the people who interact with God use a plural pronoun, which is a, a unique way. It's not normal, and the English usually glosses over it. It just shows up in the singular in the English, but in the Hebrew, it shows up in the plural. I was going to show those to you, but I'll, maybe I'll wait. And then there was one last commentary, another one from, looks like this one's probably from Tim Haig again, that was on the mystery of godliness. That I'm not going to belabor that point. I think you guys got the, the, the idea that now that when we're talking about the mystery of of God in the incarnation. It includes this idea of godliness, that is, relating to God in the proper way in which God must be related. And because we're talking about mystery, which includes the incarnation, right, God being revealed in the flesh, remember we looked at those Hebrew textual variants last week? Go back and listen to show number 212, where we looked at According to 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. And then some translations say God was revealed in the flesh. Has theos. Has, he was revealed in the flesh. And the others say theos was revealed in the flesh. And thus, because of the differences in manuscripts, we have warrant for saying that the early translators understood that this was incarnation language. And yet, in relationship to mystery and godliness, and the way we are to live our lives in accordance and belief in God, it includes Trinitarian understanding of God, this mystery of God being revealed in the flesh, the incarnation of Messiah, the revealing God in the flesh, in the person, in the man of Messiah. Thus, my challenge is this, and I'll say this in closing, and hopefully the biblical Unitarianism crowd won't be too offended by what I'm about to say. If you are stripping God of his Trinitarian, of his trinitarian nature if you're stripping god of the incarnation if you're if you're expunging the bible or you're purging it or you're cleansing it of its trinitarian beliefs and verbiage and language like the biblical unitarian model seems to favor i don't know if they outright reject those verses that teach trinity or they just simply reject the the interpretation but keep the verse I know some non-Trinitarians, I interact with them, they just reject the verse altogether. They, they don't care about the translation. They don't try to retranslate it in a different way, like the Biblical Unitarian website is doing. They simply toss out the verse. They just throw it under the bus, and they say it's suspect. And so they, they begin to edit their own Bible in a very unhealthy way. But what I want to say is that if you are of that mindset where God cannot be Trinity and you don't allow for the New Testament to bring the mystery of Trinity to you, then how can you properly walk in the godliness that Paul is talking about here in this verse in 1 Timothy 3.16? How can you properly walk... Let me switch to the verse so you can see it instead of looking at Tim Hitt's commentary. How can, how can you properly walk this out? I'll bring up the verse so you can see it. All right. 1 Timothy 
1 Timothy 3.16. How can you properly walk this verse out in godliness unless you are affirming the mystery of Trinity that Paul alludes to in this verse? So that's my challenge to you, biblical Unitarians. Biblical Unitarians. Think about that. Pray about it. You're still my brothers and sisters in the Lord, as long as you affirm that Jesus is the one and true and only Messiah, and he is the only way that you can be reconciled to the Father and be forgiven of, of your sins and be pardoned then yes, you are believers right along with me. So I'm not picking on that. Let's continue to look at more of these topics through the lens of biblical Unitarianism. We'll turn next week to their next verse on their list is Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne of God will last forever and ever. And that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for the Passover season, which is upon us once again. I bless you and thank you for all that it represents. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is my Passover Lamb, and through him and by him I have been reconciled to the Father. His blood was poured out so that I can be forgiven of sins, so the debt could be paid, so that I can be protected from the wrath of God. Thank you, Father, for sending the Lamb of God Thank you that I can now enjoy this fellowship with you with a renewed heart in in perfect expression of who you are. Even though it's mysterious, I can't see you. You are invisible to me. But I can see the man, Messiah Yeshua. He walked, he talked, he lived among us. We could see him, we beheld him. And to see him is to see the Father. Thank you, Lord, for coming and living among us, Lord Yeshua. Thank you for pouring out your life. Thank you for ascending to the Father, sitting at the right hand, and sending the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending the Ruach Kodesh at Pentecost. Bless you, Father, for all that Passover represents. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. They're all connected together through the counting of the Omer for the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. Thank you that this is a season that is most blessed. Continue to bless us as we enjoy our Passover seders this week and as we engage in the saying no to leavened bread and leavened products in our houses, which reminds us of saying no to sin in our lives. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin, to say no to sin and yes to Yeshua and the power of the Holy Spirit. Draw us together. Bring us back together next week. Keep us safe. Keep us blessed. Keep us healthy. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,